Hello, I'm Muriel, and I love true crime. I'm Nick, and I am not a fan. Thank you for joining us. Each week, I force Nick to listen to me tell him a story of a true crime. Welcome to Muriel's Murders. This week, we're talking tech millionaires, assassins, crumbling New England dynasties, and a man who does not know the meaning of the word quit. This is part one of our two-part series on John J. Donovan Sr., a.k.a. The Nutty Professor. <laughs> is that is that his real a.k.a. or is that just a Muriel no, a.k.a.? No, he earned that <laughs> in the papers for being a little nutty. All right. Well, it sounds very current if we're talking tech millionaires. It is current. I don't uh, know what this is at all. This yeah. is like breaking news or something. I haven't heard of it before either. It spans a few decades, uh-huh. but it just now resolved in the courts in October of t- 2022. Uh-huh. So it's pretty recent. Yeah. It's a wild ride. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I'm excited to tell you about it. I know you don't know anything about it. So yeah. let's do it. Anyway, like I said, this is part one of a two-part series. Part two is available on our Patreon right now if you mm. get a hanker in. Yes, www.patreon.com slash Muriel's Murders. Direct access to part two of this story. Okay. Uh, Why did you say it again? <laughs> I don't know. Just doing a news reporter thing. Hello, everyone. It would be cool <laughs> if you subscribe to our YouTube channel. It's a great way to spread the Muriel's Murders gospel and helps our little frail egos. Muriel's Murders is also now on Tumblr. Weird. Yep. Now that they allow nudity we're back baby (laughs) and that is a great place to follow us and see what we're up to i also wanted to plug muriel's artist instagram page that's at muriel.montgomery.art check out all of her beautiful paintings the links to all that stuff is in the show notes of this episode all right very cool okay everybody (laughs) remember this is a true story involving murder violence drugs adult themes etc so if any listeners are like nick and they don't want to hear about those kind of things go listen to a different podcast plus we're gonna curse and we're gonna joke and if you don't like that kind of stuff you know just find a weird vinyl smoke cigarettes look out the window put on music you know turn off this podcast all right nikki are you ready to hear this story no okay let's get started Okay, just to start out, I am going to tell you a few things about our sources. Great. Uh, We use two long-form articles from Boston Magazine. The first one, Professor Donovan's Magnificent Entanglements, written by John Wolfson in 2006. And then the second was The Last Days of Professor Donovan by Steve Bailey, and that was written in 2022. They're both excellent articles. And then... We also used additional reporting from Steve Bailey for the Boston Globe. Mm -hmm. Steve Bailey is a longtime business editor of the Boston Globe, so he wrote extensively on the Donovans from the mid-90s to the mid-2000s. He's got tons of information on them, and he's a super cool guy. Uh, (laughs) Bailey Shout out to Bailey. Super cool. (laughs) Bailey says he was the first one to call Donovan the nutty professor. All right. He's staking his claim. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. And then we also used... Tons of coverage of more recent trials from Julie Manganis at the Salem News. She's their court reporter and she's on the case. (laughs) (laughs) This is awesome. Those are great titles for the articles too. What was it? Magnificent Entanglement? Yes. Uh, Uh, It's a great article. It sounds like a Harry Potter title or something. (laughs) All right. So we're starting this story on Friday night, December 16th. 2005 in Hamilton, Massachusetts. Hamilton is a little town. It has around 8,000 people and it's in Essex County. The town is not on the coast. It's not a Manchester by the sea town. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's landlocked. But that's fine because what Hamilton is really known for is being horse city. (laughs) (laughs) It's a horse lover's town. (laughs) If you drive through parts of it, you'll be expected to share the road with Hamilton Knights on horseback. 
But this is also kind of a fancy town, okay? So instead of saying it's a horse city uh-huh. full of horse lovers, they <laughs> like to say it's like an equestrian hub. Oh, <laughs> oh they do? That's what they like to say? <laughs> the Myopia Hunt Club is yeah. the center of a lot of this horse action. They have seasonal... Why are you laughing? <laughs> How could I not be? Look at you. What are you doing? <laughs> I'm just trying to set the scene, okay? You're, I can tell. You, so the, that is what you're doing. The Myopia Hunt Club is uh-huh. the center of action, right? This mm. is the center of social action and socialites in Hamilton. They have seasonal hunts with hounds and that whole deal. Yeah. They have black tie balls, horse shows, hound shows. I looked at their events calendar. <laughs> they have <laughs> yeah. parades. Uh-huh. Uh, it sounds very moneyed. Yes. Myopia okay. also hosts the oldest active horse polo club in the entire U.S. All right. So, like you said, you can guess it's mostly a middle to upper class, white collar town, great public schools, no violent crime. The center of town is Patton Park. It's a sprawling public space where kids have tennis lessons and General George Patton's tank is parked on the lawn. <laughs> it's like a very American town. <laughs> it so, sounds like all like, I don't know, the Kennedys used to hang out there or something. That is a parallel that we are going to be drawing. All right. On the night of December 16th, 2005, however, Patton Park was frozen and the town was gearing up for Christmas with lights and red and green bunting. What's and a, bunting? It's like ribbon. It's like this. Oh, the ribbon the, things? Yeah, okay. Like, like decorations. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and about a 45 minute drive away in the Vassar Street parking lot adjacent to the prestigious MIT campus, Ooh. prominent Hamilton resident John J. Donovan Sr. was sprawled out of the driver's seat of his white minivan, bleeding out from a gunshot wound to the belly. Oh, no. The 63-year-old millionaire and MIT professor had just left his consulting company, Cambridge Technology Group, for the night and was gearing up for the long, wintry drive back to his 68-acre gentleman's farm-style estate in Hamilton. Damn. That's when he was attacked around 8.30 p.m. in the parking lot. That's brutal. During a meandering 11-minute 911 call, the panicked millionaire struggled to tell the emergency dispatcher simple facts, like uh-huh. where he was located. Yeah. Instead, he desperately flooded the operator with what he believed to be critical information. He'd been shot by two Russian-speaking men, and he needed Cambridge police to contact Hamilton police immediately or his wife Linda was going to die. Oh, that's okay. Russian espionage. He's MIT. He's got some secret codes to something. We're going to get your wife. Uh-huh. And he needs a he needs the Cambridge police on the case. Okay. So unfortunately, I couldn't find like a full transcript of the 911 call. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was just couldn't find it. I think you can find it, but uh-huh. you have to ask for it in advance and a lot of the time I'm like <laughs> Typing like a Muppet, being like, I have one hour. (laughs) No, anyway, I couldn't find it easily. Yeah, right. This ain't serial, folks. (laughs) (laughs) So I pieced the following information together from a bunch of different news articles that had different quotes. Mm -hmm. So Donovan apparently explained to the operator, the 911 operator, that he had discovered that his 40-year-old son, James Donovan, had stolen $180 $180 million from a Donovan family trust. So the family is very wealthy yeah. and has this huge dynasty. Yeah. And most of their money is tied up in these different trusts. Which means like his son probably will be rich forever, but just can't have access to all that money. And the son's like, mm, actually, I'm just going to steal it. Right. Okay. So he says... I just found out my son James stole $180 million and he laundered it through Goldman Sachs. James had actually made partner there in 2000 Mm -hmm. and he worked in investment managing. So he said he's filtered it all through these Goldman Sachs accounts. Donovan was sure whoever had sent the rushing speaking men to his office would also be after his third wife, Linda, who he had told about the missing money. 
Donovan finished the call with asking the dispatcher to tell Linda I love her. Oh, man. So he thinks he's dying. He's bleeding out. The stomach shots are brutal. That's so, so drastic. And he thinks he's dying. He's like, this is all the important information. These are clues. Like, Downloading solve the it. crime. Save my wife. Tell her I love her. Right. Oh, can you imagine being in that place? It's so crazy. It's so sad and scary. So police flooded Devin Glenn. That's John Donovan Sr.'s Hamilton estate. All of his estates have names. Of course they have names. <laughs> and they found Linda Donovan there unharmed. Good. Law enforcement then remained through the night on security duty, not sure if someone was going to show up to the house. Yeah. James Donovan, the son, lived about a mile down the road from his father's estate in Hamilton with his wife, Christina, and his three small kids. That night, law enforcement stormed James Donovan's home with assault rifles to conduct a search and interrogate James and Christina. So they were immediate suspects. Yes. They ultimately found no Russian hitmen or anything else of note that night, but they did definitely storm the house. Mm -hmm. Police arrived to the scene of the shooting to find Don Donovan Sr. hanging halfway out of his minivan in an empty, gated parking lot Bleeding out, but still conscious. That's kind kind of a creepy image. The one car with like a light over it is snowy around it. Yeah, and it's like the doors open, dudes hanging out of it. Yeah, that's yeah. His driver's side window was shot out, and he had an entrance and exit wound in his abdomen from the same bullet. But mm-hmm. thankfully, it had missed any organs. Mm. It had gone straight through his gut, but hadn't hit anything. His belt buckle was totally destroyed. Donovan explained that the large metal buckle had deflected two of the close-range small-caliber shots that had been aimed at his stomach. Man, that's also... Maybe they were aiming at his crotch. I'm just saying, <laughs> okay, okay. the belt buckle is like right there. It could They could have been... They could have okay. been who knows if that was supposed to be his stomach or not. Big hot takes. Uh, Donovan was... <laughs> Rushed into surgery Mm -hmm. where doctors stitched up his abdomen and surgically removed some glass from his ear canal after the window had been shot out. Mm -hmm. He was released the next morning into a firestorm of press and a statewide investigation involving four different police agencies. John Donovan Sr. had been locked in a public legal battle with his five adult children for several years over a family trust and a number of luxury properties and tracts of land. And there was a lot of bad blood. So Mm. right off the top, it seemed like this was no accident. Yeah, yeah. But... That bad blood wasn't new for Donovan. He was known for his hot temper and litigious nature. Uh, According to the Greenfield, Massachusetts (laughs) paper, The Recorder, Donovan was involved in 17 lawsuits in 2004 alone. I mean, when you go and look up his lawsuits, there's like 12 a year. He's just suing everybody. His kids, five kids. You're all going to court. (laughs) You guys won't shut up. We'll see you in court. So despite being a brilliant public figure and local philanthropist, John J. Donovan Sr. had his share of haters. Mm -hmm. So that's where we start this story. Donovan Sr. grew up working class in a third floor tenement apartment on Barrett Street in Westland, Massachusetts, about five minutes from Hamilton. Mm -hmm. So not in a super fancy place. He was a really bright kid early on, and he went from the public Lynn English High School to Tufts University, where he earned his bachelor's degree in electrical engineering, and then straight to the Ivy League. He headed to Yale University with everything he owned on the back of a Vespa scooter. (laughs) That's that rocks. And that's a great place to grow up. Like if you're like a public school kid and you're just smart, it is very much luck to be living in Massachusetts next to schools like Tufts and Yale because you're surrounded by people who are kind of like, oh, you're smart. Just go over there. Yeah. I mean, think about all the ridiculously smart kids we knew in Seattle public schools. No one knew what to do with those kids. Yeah. They were just like, oh, University of Washington's a good school, I guess. Just Why go don't you there. go do theater? <laughs> uh, according to his LinkedIn profile uh-huh. at Yale, Donovan earned two master's degrees and a PhD. Mm-hmm. And then he went on to MIT 
for his postdoctoral work in electrical engineering. This so, is so exciting. He's really it's like the h- high world of smart people, like <laughs> figuring out codes. So after that, he worked as a guest lecturer at different universities. In 1963, he started teaching at MIT, where he eventually became a tenured professor. And in addition to that gig, he also worked as an assistant clinical professor of pediatrics at Tufts, where he he did research using statistical analysis to track birth defects. So he's just using his smart brain all over the place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He lectured at Yale, he lectured at Harvard, blah, blah, blah. He's a very fancy, distinguished academic gentleman. So (laughs) Donovan started founding little companies pretty early on in his career. The first company he claims to have started was a tech company that sold hardware for IBM computers way back in 1968. Um, That was called Intercomp. So... According to reporting by Steve Bailey, John Donovan was at the very beginning of little tech companies making huge money with their IPOs, their initial public offerings, like when a company goes public on the stock market. Right, yeah. There was a big, hot market for new technology firms, basically. So in addition to teaching, Donovan would churn out these little tech startups. On his LinkedIn, Donovan claims to have started 26 companies, although I've seen that number vary a little bit. Mm -hmm. Early investors in the startups would just make a killing, a huge profit, Yeah. while later investors would often lose money. Right, he's playing a little game here. There's a little game to be had. The idea is like they start really fast and hot and then die a terrible death. (laughs) Yeah, well, he's doing his statistical analysis. You know, he's tracking all the birth defects or whatever. He just applied that to like, I think we can make a lot of money, like pumping in money to these little tech things right away. Right. Um, And arguably his most long lasting and lucrative company was one he founded with a fellow MIT professor called Cambridge Technology Group. Is that very famous? I feel like that's famous, but maybe it's just because it has the word to Cambridge in it. I think that's what it is. I think yeah. that's what it was for me too, but I, I can't really tell. Yeah, I don't know anything. It's pretty famous, but I don't know why it would be famous for us. Yeah, all I know is like Macintosh, Apple, <laughs> Texas Instruments, NVIDIA. You know, right. that's that's as far as that goes for me. All right. So according to John Wolfson's reporting for Boston Magazine, in 1977, Donovan co-founded what was then called the Cambridge Training Center with fellow professor Stuart Madnick. So Madnick's idea was to sell intensive training seminars that supposedly taught a year's worth of graduate level computer science in two weeks. Oh, so they're up to scams also? They're hitting every angle. And they set up shop right next door to the MIT campus. So it's seemed legit. Mm -hmm. Mandic says Donovan would kind of low-key build the workshops as an MIT thing, Uh even though it wasn't affiliated with the university on any level. (laughs) Like (laughs) That's so shady. Like, he'd end the seminars saying something like, this is like one of the quotes from his promotional videos. Yeah. You are now a part of a professional community. You are a part forever of Cambridge, of Boston, and of MIT, of Harvard, of this whole community. You've earned that. You know you've earned it. <laughs> That's like saying we're a Hollywood podcast because we're recording in Los Angeles. <laughs> we're like next to CBS. It's like... <laughs> Hollywood podcast. Yeah. So Madnick says Donovan was kind of like a televangelist. He's just extremely charismatic and really got people pumped up. That's a dangerous combination with being like a computer genius also. Yeah. Oh, man. There's this <laughs> video that I love of... It's something like, it's a conference to celebrate like Windows 95. Uh And it's like Bill Gates (laughs) and all of his buddies like on stage. Like jumping around. Well, they're supposed to be like, this is a rock and roll. And they're dancing, but they're (laughs) they're dancing. It's just everyone is such a nerd. They're like, yeah. <laughs> and it's just always really funny to me. That's what that. But this guy was like cool. You know? <laughs> and this work really quickly also expanded out to executive 
trainings. So it was like co- executive coaching is what they kind of landed in. Sure. And Cambridge Training Center's first major clients were AT&T and Samsung. And the company kind of exploded from there. According to Steve Bailey, early on, Donovan was charging upwards of $300,000 for two-day speaking engagements. In what years? Like 90 or like earlier than that, 80s. No, early, yeah, 70s, 80s, something like that. That's amazing. The New York Times called Donovan the Johnny Carson of the training circuit (laughs) Uh, for the next. What's that supposed to mean? (laughs) Just like he's charismatic. Uh I mean, I think that reference worked better back then. (laughs) But still, now it'd be like he's the Stephen Colbert. (laughs) This means he's funny. He's kind of like got a showman's quality. I don't know. I mean. That's just what they said. All I don't right. really know anything about Johnny Carson, to be honest. Well, he's a talk show. Dude. I know that, but I mean, I yeah. don't know his personality. Right. Uh, really big show. That's him. <laughs> I don't know. Actually. Okay. <laughs> so for the next 20 years, Madnick and Donovan started four other companies together and co-wrote two books. So this is a pretty major partnership. Yeah. In 1980, Donovan and his first wife, Marilyn, had a super, super messy divorce after 17 years of marriage and five kids. Mm. The divorce settlement actually had to be reopened due to, quote, allegations of fraud and misrepresentation and concealment of assets. So at that time, Donovan denied wrongdoing, but he ended up paying Marilyn another $250,000. And I just added that in just to show, like, his wife, who takes care of his five kids mm-hmm. <laughs> that he was married to for 17 years, he's like hiding all of his money from her. Right. You know, that's, that's kind of his deal. Gotcha. After the divorce settlement, Marilyn moved about 15 minutes away to Danvers, Massachusetts with the kids, who at that point were aged nine through 14. So Donovan then, he remarries in 1984 to a much younger woman who had taken one of his training seminars named Mary Jo Bunker. Oh, she got sucked into the cult. Yeah. Meanwhile, Donovan was raking it in with his Cambridge firm. They started selling AT&T annual multi-million dollar contracts. So they were like, every year you're bringing them in. So now this money is annual it's not just like one-offs he's selling these full annual contracts right donovan then he decided to buy stuart madnick out of the cambridge company in 1986 and took over the whole thing fully by 1990 donovan's assets were valued at about a hundred million dollars which is a lot of money in those days yeah i'll take some of that (laughs) and that's when donovan decided to start buying up tons of land and luxury properties. I think at one point he had somewhere in the neighborhood of a thousand acres of land in Massachusetts. This is what I'm trying to tell people. Invest in real estate. I tell people that all the time. Boy, if you're you a hundred millionaire person, land, land, buy yourself land. That's what you need. You need you you're need to literally own. literally just saying that right now. <laughs> <laughs> but by 1990s, yeah. his second marriage was on the rocks. Mary Jo, you know, said we were having trouble. And then he came to her and demanded she signed a post-nup agreement to try to get her to not take any of his money. After the, the fact? Yeah. <laughs> She not didn't sign case. it, did she? No, I Good. don't know. Actually, I don't know. Okay. They both accused each other of abuse and they kind of mutually filed for divorce. Donovan claimed at the time to not have any income, just assets. Mm-hmm. So Mary Jo got a million in her divorce settlement, one million, and then 5000 a month in alimony. And she also got a five-story townhome in Boston, which is so weird to me because I feel like yeah. townhomes are like tall and skinny. So like uh-huh. five story townhome. I know it's seems huge. Seems like that's also just too vertical. You know what I mean? <laughs> just a ladder. I mean, you just need a ladder. It's like a, tr- a tree house. That's a lot. I of- bet you it's dope. I bet you it's one of those cool like Boston brownstone things. Yeah, but you, you know? leave something in like your study and then you have to walk up like oh, seven stairs. Poor Mary Jo, a five story <laughs> townhouse in Boston. Too vertical. I'll take it. I take it. Well, I'm- I do. I want to give her credit too because that's what I always tell people when you're going through divorce, you need some property. Get a house. Stop. Get your house. Stop. You owe it to yourself. You'd never say that. <laughs> say it all the time. Okay, so it wasn't just romantic relationships that were a little rocky for old Donovan Sr. He also had several falling outs with business partners, employees, clients, even neighbors. 
So I'm just going to tell you a few of these things. So you're going to get a picture of mm-hmm. what he's up to. Right. Because we need to see like so far, he's not a nutty professor as much as he seems like an evil genius professor. So we need some nuttiness thrown into the Oh, mix. you're going to get some nuttiness. <laughs> so this is but these are kind of the things he would just be up to generally. Mm-hmm. Donovan's longtime partner, Madnick, that we talked about, had to actually sue Donovan for one point four million dollars in the late 90s, basically because you know, Donovan bought him out and then didn't pay him all the money. He was mm. just like, come on, man. We've been friends for like 20 years. Give me this stupid money. And he's like, well, I don't know. <laughs> no. Donovan was also mm-hmm. sued by 10 subcontractors for 181000 after he hired them for a Citigroup workshop and then just didn't pay them. People love doing that. Hire, oh yeah, well, let's just hire them. And then they do the work and they just don't pay them. That's like people's top move. Donovan also had a perfectly fine, totally normal business relationship with a guy named Jack Razika for 13 years before out of the blue, Donovan just tried to secretly tank a real estate deal that they had. And mm-hmm. it was like super sneaky. Yeah. They were trying to trade properties and he was going to lease this thing out and he tried to like buy this building from underneath this guy. So Razika ended up suing Donovan for $4.8 million and winning yeah. because it was hella obvious that he was just being shady. Yeah. And then he had to drag Donovan back to court to force him to pay because Donovan was trying to be slick. He was like, <laughs> okay, you won the judgment. Try me. In 1980... 1980- in 1998, yeah. he tried to build this giant, ostentatious 140-foot deck off of one of his coastal properties, and his uber-rich neighbors were like, no, bro, and they sued him to get him to stop. Right, because it's like ruining their view or something. Exactly. They sued him basically for being super tacky. Yeah. So after the suit was filed, Donovan hired a road crew to come and install speed bumps on the private road that led into the posh neighborhood. Everybody's like, what is he doing? Uh-huh. And then one of the neighbors, who was a five-foot-three mom of four, came over and told a worker, quote, you guys should be looking for new jobs. And because of that, Donovan ended up requesting an injunction against this neighbor, claiming his workers were too afraid to continue their jobs because of her intense hostility. And they were just like, you know, I mean, their neighbors are literally like, what? Donovan then hired private investigators to canvas the neighborhood and gather dirt on his neighbors who sued him. Oh, so he's just going crazy. He's just doing it his own juices at this point. So then like other people in the neighborhood come up to these neighbors and they Uh say, a PI has been in my house and they're asking me about whether or not I think your family made threatening calls to Donovan's daughter, Maureen Donovan, right? And these neighbors, they're baffled. At this point, they're like, what? There's private eyes. And now there's this rumor about how we're harassing his family. And so this woman who said this one thing to Uh this like road crew ran into Maureen Donovan at the grocery store. And she said, I am so sorry this is happening to you. It's definitely not us. But I'm really sorry you're going through this. And Maureen Donovan was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Yeah, of course. Nobody's been calling me. This dad is just so petty. He's like powerful and petty. Right. And ultimately, after all of that craziness, nothing happened. The injunction against this poor lady was denied. And then the dock was just never built. But it Uh left the neighbors just completely baffled. (laughs) I guess that guy's a douche. I don't know what to say. Donovan was even sued by his youngest son and namesake, John Donovan Jr., who was working for Donovan Sr. at the time. Mm -hmm. He loaned his dad $4.8 million and then Donovan was like, I don't know, what 4.8 million? I don't remember that. And Junior had to force his dad into a legal arbitration to get his money back. And actually, the arbitrator in that case wrote, quote, I find that John Jr. was a truthful and credible witness, and I find the testimony of Professor Donovan to be unworthy of belief and false in all material respects. <laughs> Damn. And then ordered him to pay up. And he's just like, why is this in court? Like, obviously you owe him this money. Yeah, yeah. So now, okay, we're reaching the 90s. John J. Donovan Sr. has a lot of money 
two divorces, and a whole bushel of lawsuits coming his way, and five kids. So he decides in 1992 and again in 1996 to transfer the lion's share of his fortune into two Bermuda-based trust funds. And because of either a deep generosity and love for his children or because of a pathological need to be scheming, <laughs> Donovan names his children as the sole beneficiaries of one of the trusts. Mm -hmm. So the only person I could find who could explain this whole next part in a way I could understand was reporter John Wolfson. This guy is an excellent explainer of complicated things for Muriel. <laughs> All right. So the trusts themselves were run by independent trustees who had final say in all of the money stuff, the investments, how the trust was managed, right? Mm. And that's really standard. So it's not like the kids were like in charge of the trusts. It, it's a whole system that runs them and generates money and tries to make the trust bigger or whatever, yes. right? Now, Donovan's lawyers say his intention in creating the trusts was to use the trusts as a tax shelter, like many filthy rich people, and also as an aspect of his, of his estate planning, mm -hmm. with the idea that he would still use a percentage of the trust revenue for charities. Because um, he was a very philanthropic-minded person. Okay. This sounds like classic uh, rich person thing that I'm sort of vaguely aware of, but don't understand how it works at all on right. any so real I think, level. I think the idea is that he's saying, oh, well, my intention wasn't to give my money all to my kids at this point. Yeah. It's more like move it around, hide it, put it over here. Yeah. Now she can't get it. You know, like that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. That's my interpretation of what I read. <laughs> So from what I understand, what happened next was the independent trustees thought it would be a smart move to grow the trust by using the money in the trust to purchase a bunch of Donovan's real estate, essentially using his own money to transfer ownership of the properties to his children. Mm -hmm. And after the transfers... Donovan would continue to live in these properties and use them as if he owned them, mm -hmm. right? Like, right? So it wasn't, you know, in his mind, it's not giving them away, right? He's, <laughs> yeah. he's just, It's in your name, but I'm still going to like crash on the couch whenever I house. want. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So after establishing the Bermuda Trusts in the 1990s, Donovan's kids, who had been raised by their mother, came back full force into Donovan Sr.'s orbit. They were all successful in their own right. They were growing up, starting families. Maureen, the oldest, had an NBA and five kids. His son James had followed dad's footsteps, attending first MIT and then Harvard Law. His daughter Carolyn was a doctor with degrees from Georgetown and Yale. His fourth kid, Rebecca, held an MBA from MIT. And then his youngest son, John Jr., was a Yale graduate and worked with his father side by side at Cambridge Technology Group. So I'm getting very hard like HBO succession vibes here. Yeah, I did mm -hmm. too. Like, I, I think that's the vibe. And the houses are insane. Just they, beautiful. I mean, they live in like 28 room. Yeah, mansions. Mansions. Yeah. That are, I mean, full estates. Right. They're just beautiful and they're all over the place he's got a bunch of them and they're all thick as thieves the kids all came to donovan's wedding to his third wife linda they all vacationed together um james donovan bought an estate right next door to his father's estate in hamilton he joined the myopia hunt club that his dad loved so they were really in it together yeah Donovan Sr. was known to brag that his clan was on par with another Irish-American dynasty in New England, the Kennedys. Mm -hmm. So he was like, I'm the next Kennedy. You know? uh -huh. He even had Donovan stick together carved into the mantle of his stone fireplace. <laughs> so he's a very big legacy guy. Sure. So according to John Wolfson's reporting, in late 2002... $29 million was quietly dispersed to the Donovan kids out of one of the family trusts. A short time afterwards, in December, 
John Jr. and his sister Rebecca invited Donovan Sr. to a lawyer's office in Boston to drop a bombshell. Their oldest sister, Maureen, had revealed to her siblings that their father had molested her for years when she was a child. Oh, really? Yeah. So the kids were coming to Boston to talk to their dad. They're backing their sister, Mm -hmm. and they say they want a complete personal and financial separation from their father. And as the majority of Donovan's properties were now in their name, they wanted to expel him from Hamilton, off the family estate, out of the myopia hunt club, like completely gone. Whoa. Donovan Sr. is like absolutely not adamant he never molested his daughter that this was all an elaborate scheme that his kids were concocting to steal his home and drain the family trusts Mm -hmm. he was sure also that james donovan his son was the architect of his downfall Uh uh-huh yeah that was his his plan Mm -hmm. so both sides are going scorched earth with donovan senior refusing outright to vacate his Hamilton estate. Um, So to try and move forward, the family came to a compromise. The kids would let Donovan Sr. use the properties for the rest of his natural life, and they'd pay him out $6 million in exchange for legal and public acknowledgement that he was not the owner of the properties. Hmm. As soon as the deal was signed, Donovan Sr. went public about being coerced to sign, that the kids threatened to publish a press release about Marine's sexual abuse if he didn't agree to the settlement. So that's when this years-long, heavy legal battle began with James, Marine, Rebecca, and Carolyn on one side and Donovan Sr. on the other side with John Jr. playing the middleman in between them. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm Mm-hmm. Donovan Sr. went public with his story. His side, the abuse story was completely false. His kids were trying to rob him blind. He had commissioned a lie detector test for himself, and he had passed with flying colors. We all know lie detectors are not real, right? (laughs) Donovan claimed that actually, when the abuse allegations came out in 2002, Maureen and her husband had actually just been caught misappropriating funds from a family business. Uh, that they'd used over $100,000 for childcare and other personal things, and that these allegations of abuse were just a cover to try to save her from any litigation. Adding also that when he divorced his first wife, all the kids had psychological workups as part of the proceedings in 1981, and no one showed any signs of abuse in that report. A spokesperson for the kids stated the misappropriation of funds was just a complete bald-faced lie. Yeah. There's no evidence of that whatsoever. And that Marine's sex abuse had actually been disclosed to several doctors in the 1980s. Yeah. The only reason it wasn't in her dad's report was because that report was compiled by his personal psychologist specifically to discredit his first wife, Marilyn, during the divorce proceedings. Oh, so that, and they were able to have the track record, the paper trail of all of that stuff. This is just what was in the papers. Yeah. You know, so it's, Mm -hmm. it's, I think that the idea is that psychologist did do the workup. So there's something kind of hinky there. It's his psychologist who, had that report but nobody's offering like proof sure as far as i know yeah. what's crazy is like this is playing out in the public like in the newspapers yeah this family is really famous for the region and all of this stuff is coming out they're just speaking through spokespeople so tension is building and then in october 2003 James Donovan was in his driveway getting ready to take his two daughters trick-or-treating with his pregnant wife when police drove up to his 22-acre estate, Black Rock Farm, to serve him a restraining order from his father. Someone that night had fired a rifle into Donovan Sr.'s window, hitting his favorite chair. Police found a bullet in the home. And Donovan told police he suspected his son was behind the attempted assassination. 
Although James was never an official su- suspect. Uh-huh. He thought it was an assassination. I mean, don't they live out in the Hunt Club USA? It just seems like a random bullet went through this window. Yeah, maybe. I mean, was he in the room? Was it? Did he feel like he was shot at? What he felt was that he always sits in that chair, and he wasn't sitting in that chair that night, but that's his favorite chair, and the person who shot it would have known. <laughs> All right. I hear you, though, man. It just is weird to me. I don't know. I just feel like these people have... So much. These five kids, they're all accomplished. They all have these insane degrees, and I'm guessing they're using them in their professionally. Like, or did they just get oh, the yeah, degrees yeah, yeah. and then just sit back? And then he's like, they're going to drain the trust. I'm scared they're going to drain the trust. It's like if they were hitting, hitting the bong and chilling next to the pool, riding horses all over the place and never doing anything with their life, you'd be like, okay, they're going to drain the trust, you know? There's a lot of paranoia in here. I mean, who knows where the truth lies? Sometimes the kids publicly have been like, we know for a fact our dad is saying this trust is worth about twice what it actually is worth. Mm-hmm. He's like, so like that the numbers are inflated and the idea that they're stealing it, it all just seems kind of like, outrageous yeah but anyway uh he was super hyper focused on his son james over the years donovan senior took out two restraining orders against james and filed a harassment suit on behalf of his third wife linda against james who claimed james mean mugged her while she was skiing and then he mean mugged her again (laughs) while she was riding her horse and then a third time when she was hanging out at the myopia horse club you can't give people dirty looks in in these mean streets you know yeah she was like he is menacing me (laughs) So on June 11th, 2004, a mediator brokered a second settlement between Donovan Sr. and the kids, this time with the provision that all parties had to swear an oath that they were signing the document voluntarily. Donovan stood up before the court and he swore, quote, my name is Professor John Donovan. I agree with the settlement and I did not sexually molest my daughter. Okay. So everything was great and settled. The settlement had been signed. Everybody swore an oath. What's done is done. Just kidding. Ah, It just kept on going. (laughs) Like even by 2006, just a couple years later, Donovan Sr. had gone through six law firms fighting the settlement. So the legal battle just continued over luxury properties and tracts of land. Basically, over and over again, the kids would settle their lawsuits with Donovan only for Donovan to get new lawyers and then channel, challenge the settlement. God, so, just like, God forbid you just enjoy the sunset and smoke your cigars <laughs> and drink your scotch, I mean, and take were, your pain pills, whatever you're into, <laughs> and just let it ride out, man. You're rich forever. Give money away. What, you know? You could win people's love just by donating to charity and fighting your kids in court. Like court and it's sucks. Like spending millions and millions and millions of dollars in legal fees. Yeah. And throughout all of this, John Jr. was the bridge between his father and his siblings. John Jr. believed Marine's stories and ha- story of abuse and has signed affidavits saying that he does believe and stand by Marine. Mm-hmm. But he was kind of worried about the lifestyle of his aging dad. You know, he was sympathetic to the siblings, but worried about whether or not he was going to actually have a house to live in or whatever. Mm -hmm. So from what I understand, ultimately, John Jr. was a leader in developing a trust created by the siblings for Donovan Sr. that would set him up for the rest of his life and hopefully end all the legal back and forth. So there was... It's a little hard to tell like exactly what went down because there's so much back and forth. But I think eventually there was some sort of trust set up that was accepted that paid him out a certain amount a year. Seems like they got a lot of trust. Let's just throw another one in the mix. (laughs) So the next year, Christmas 2005, was a weird time in Hamilton. The normally sleepy town was decked out and holiday ribbon, bunting, and lights. But beneath the Christmas cheer, there were some dark vibes lurking. A 24-year-old 
former high school track star at Hamilton Wenham High School had died in a freak accident just around Thanksgiving after drinking at a party and attempting to jump across a couple of apartment building roofs in Boston. Uh, And it was just like a terrible tragic right like showing off at a party watch me i can jump from one roof to another yeah exactly so sad and so that hit the community super hard over the holidays and the town had also just experienced its first homicide in 15 years with the beating death of 82 year old ruby blackhall whoa Ruby's adult daughter, Kim, had a psychotic break after stopping her psychiatric medication and she murdered her mother about a week before Christmas. Police found Ruby Blackwell's body covered in symbolic items that she and Kim used to argue about. So her body was covered with different types of food, a purse, Mm -hmm. a jar of Vicks vapor rub, and a TV set. That's so hard. And then to top off these freak accidents and kind of bizarre, you know, murder. Violent tragedy. Right. In a small town, longtime Hamilton resident and prominent businessman, John J. Donovan Sr. had been shot in the gut by a pair of Russian speaking men in an MIT parking lot. Yeah. So the investigation into the attempted murder of Donovan Sr. was in full swing and upended the town at this point. It was full of press. There was all kinds of stuff going on. It was a huge investigation. Unsure if the entire Donovan clan was being targeted, the kids beefed up their security and they only spoke to press through a spokesperson. Although Donovan Sr. did see his attackers, The minivan where he was shot was out of range of security cameras. So the police didn't have any sort of clear description of the shooters. Mm -hmm. Just a white man with a possible Russian accent. Also, the parking lot was secured. Only pedestrians and people with key cards could even enter the place. So it really did seem like a targeted attack. Sure. Another thing that pointed to it being a targeted attack was there had also been a security alert at Donovan's Hamilton estate about a half an hour before the shooting. At 8.06 p.m. that same night, police responded to an alarm going off at the Donovan Sr.'s Hamilton estate. Yeah. And they got there finding a door wide open, but no sign of forced entry. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, since the family feud started in 2002, Donovan Sr.'s work had totally dried up. Most of what he did relied on his public reputation, which was totally in tatters because of this big public fight. Right. Cambridge Technology Group, which at one time had 200 employees and was valued at over $1 billion. Damn. That number I've seen twice. <laughs> I feel like that's a lot more than it should be, but uh, I don't know. Everybody says it. What, teaching a computer genius in two weeks and will come to your company and tell you how to be better leaders or whatever? That's I not worth a billion dollars. They said at one point, yeah. you know, but it was a very, it was a huge company. Yeah, yeah. Um, now it had shrunk considerably. They only had 10 employees. They weren't really getting any business in. And Donovan Sr. had taken to laying off his personal staff, like his chauffeur and Mm -hmm. stuff like that. According to the Boston Globe, Donovan told police that before the attack, a prospective client of his received a letter calling Donovan, quote, a man not to be trusted who breaks confidences. And that same kind of letter had been mailed out to his client roster the year prior and had Mm -hmm. done a ton of damage for him. Mm -hmm. So apparently this letter that had been sent out just a few days before he was shot had iced a potentially like extremely lucrative deal for Donovan 
And he was so fed up with this letter stuff yeah. that he hired a private investigator to try and find the source of the letter. So four days before the shooting, the private investigator was kicked out of John Jr.'s Manchester Athletic Club for trying to steal a copy of their stationery. <laughs> to see if it's him. See if they see if they have a printer in the in the back bedroom that's fired up. I mean, doesn't that sound like idiotic? Like you're gonna go and send a letter to your father's clients on your company's stationery. <laughs> <laughs> like I'm like either this this is that just did really any of these PIs ever do anything good for him? This was, is the last of them. Is there there's no story of like oh yeah he hired these PIs and they really got to the bottom of the thing. <laughs> no. It just sounds like he's hiring them for dumb shit and they come up empty-handed. I mean okay so he got kicked out of Manchester Athletic Club <laughs> yeah. and then two days before the shooting the PI was kicked out of Goldman Sachs for doing the same thing. That's where James Donovan worked. Right. It seems like probably, I mean, my guess, it's got to be just one of the countless people he screwed over in the business world that are sending these letters. I think probably that, not the fi- his kids. That's kind of the general vibe of what, at the time, what people were feeling about it. Yeah. It's like there's just so many people that could be mad at him. Yeah. Including his kids. But I think it's ridiculous to be like, let's see if they have Goldman, <laughs> if it matches Goldman Sachs stationery. <laughs> right. So stationary gate happened. And then on December 16th, 2005, Donovan Sr. was shot. Mm. But despite the four law enforcement agencies working on the case, no one could find any trace of these assassins. And by May 2006, the story of Donovan miraculously deflecting the bullets of his killers with a belt buckle was wearing thin, and John J. Donovan Sr. was charged with making the whole dumb thing up. Mm. That he shot himself. Stay tuned next week <laughs> for the mountain of evidence against Donovan, including a straight up to-do list for the shooting that they found in his jacket pocket. And then, wait for it, a whole other absolute banger of a Donovan scheme involving forgery, secret recordings, and 340 acres of land he tried to pull just a decade later. The man is nonstop. Well, (laughs) until he went to prison. But you don't have to wait until next week. Right now, you can get part two at www.patreon.com slash Murders. You get instant access to that episode, plus a whole back catalog of exclusive episodes, plus your heart warms with the good feelings that you get when you support uh, independent podcasters like Muriel and I. All right. What did you think of this story? That story, I had, to, I had to plug Patreon real quick. Oh you know, God. that was I had, like to, I had to jam job that in. We're talking business millionaires here, Muriel. I always tell people you need to have business first you know are get you excited your by the next one did yeah. you like it <laughs> jesus christ yeah of course i liked it yeah it's good yeah it's ridiculous incredibly wealthy people being petty will never be unfunny yeah it's totally like uh, what's it called <laughs> succession, succession. yeah uh, it's i was picturing that the whole time i was reading this it gets wild <laughs> it gets wild <laughs> Honestly, it gets way wild. Uh-huh. <laughs> so just remember, you got to listen to the second half of this. I structured this, I think, in a good way for two parts. Uh-huh. But the craziest stuff is really coming up. All right, baby. As you like to say, hold, hold on, on to your, your butts. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to Muriel's Murders. Muriel did all the research, writing, and hosting, and I did all the recording, editing, and post-production. This podcast was recorded in our living room. If you enjoyed this episode, it would be amazing for Nick and I if you text it to a loved one in your life who would enjoy it as well. We absolutely love hearing from you all. You all keep us inspired and motivated. To reach out to us, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Rate us on Spotify. Leave us a voicemail or send us a voice memo and we'll put it in an episode. Tag us on social media. We even have email. You can find all that information and more. All the links to your hearts galore (laughs) in the show notes of this episode. Or you can visit our really good website, murielsmurders.com. Our music is by Mario Castellini. Find him on Instagram at Castellini Beats. And he's literally calling me right now. So thank you guys. I'm going to talk to my brother. We love you. We'll see you soon. Good night. <laughs>